0: Last time we get to see that one. It's a great bumper, Alex. Uh, okay, it was 35 years ago, as hard as that is to believe. It was the first football, college football game I had ever attended. Uh, and it was simply the most incredible sports experience of my life to that point. Now, I did not grow up watching college football. My only football love to that point in my life was the Dallas Cowboys. But as a freshman at Notre Dame, uh, my. Irish football indoctrination actually began weeks before that first game of the season because as part of the orientation into the Navy ROTC program, we were taught all about our uh, main football rivals and all the reasons why we should dislike them. I'm talking about USC, Miami and our opponent for that first college football game that I ever attended, the University of Michigan. September 10th, 1988 was a a glorious fall evening. It was a night game, um, which was a rarity back then. It was only like the second night game in Notre Dame history. And my uh, beloved Fighting Irish ranked number 13 at the time defeated the hated Michigan Wolverines ranked number nine at the time as Michigan kicker, and I still remember this so clearly all these years later, Michigan kicker Mike Gillette missed a 48-yard field goal with three seconds left. It was amazing. Final score, Notre Dame 19, Michigan 17. Now I'm sure you all remember that game, right? (laughs) Um, We would go on to win the national title that year. Uh, Sadly, that was the last national title my Irish had won. We would go on to win 23 games in a row, which is still uh, the record winning streak in Notre Dame history, and it was just a magical time to be a Notre Dame fan. And from that day on, Michigan was counted among my football nemesis in that kind of irrational way that fans have when it comes to opposing teams. Now, if you have a particular affiliation to a particular college football team, you may know what I'm talking about. There's probably that one team or two or three that you really can't stand. We sang uh, very inappropriate alternative lyrics to their fight song. (laughs) I have not taught my children those lyrics. Um, I always rooted against them 100% of the time no matter who they were playing and I believed truly, like deep in my heart, that Ann Arbor, uh, where the University of Michigan is located, was a godless den of anti-Irish iniquity. (laughs) All very true, I'm not exaggerating. But then I met a girl from Ann Arbor, (laughs) whose father taught at the University of Michigan, whose brother was a Michigan alum, whom I would marry in Ann Arbor and with whom I would have two amazing children, children who, as soon as they were born, were outfitted in copious amounts of Michigan gear courtesy of their grandparents. (laughs) And my thinking about the University of Michigan and Ann Arbor uh, changed quite a bit. The things we do for love, am I right? Well, Merriam-Webster defines the term paradigm shift this way. an important change that happens when the usual way of thinking about or doing something is replaced by a new and different way, like when you stop hating an old football rivalry because you fall in love with a girl from there. The term paradigm shift was coined by an American philosopher named Thomas Kuhn in a book published in 1962 and it's become almost the standard way that we describe how human beings make sense of new information or new facts or new revelation. A paradigm is a, a framework of thought, um, be it about some specific scientific discipline or the world of college football or for our purposes today, theology. Because every once in a while, uh, there is a, a new bit of information, um, new knowledge that that challenges us and our old thinking and inspires, uh, or in some cases compels us to think differently about that subject in some new way. And in the history of human knowledge and scientific thought, there have been some pretty significant paradigm shifts as you know. For example, mathematician and astronomer Ptolemy, who lived in the second century AD, believed and taught that the earth is at the center of the universe. And that was the prevailing uh, theory for 1,400 years until Copernicus developed his heliocentric theory that the sun is actually at the center of the universe. And it's hard for us to believe now, but uh, that idea was incredibly disruptive, and it took, it took a while for humanity to get used to in the church, for that matter. Darwin's theory of evolution was a paradigm that challenged a particular understanding of scripture and creationism. It is not inconsistent with our United Methodist understanding of theology and the interpretation of scripture, but it is a theory that is still not accepted by some, so I'm sure you know. And then in the, in the 20th century, Einstein's theories of special relativi- relativity and general relativity caused the scientific community to, to completely update Isaac Newton's 200-year-old theory of mechanics. That's a a paradigm shift that we're uh, still living into. It revolutionized our thinking. The church, for its part, has had to navigate many paradigm shifts over the years to varying degrees of disruption and pain. Copernicus, Darwin, and Einstein um, all required that we wrestle with the connection between theology and science, for example. I think as United Methodists, we do that pretty well. But there have also been issues of, of practical theology that the church has faced. In our United Methodist tradition, for example, in the 1700s, uh, John Wesley was a leading voice for the abolition of slavery. We can be rightly proud of that part of our heritage. But as I'm sure you know, it was a, it was a position that was not well received in the American South. The, the paradigm shift that human beings actually Uh, should not own other human beings took time as well as a civil war in the United States in order to be universally accepted. It was such a contentious paradigm shift that the Methodist Church split over the issue for almost 100 years before reuniting in 1939. In the mid-20th century, uh, we saw a significant shift in thinking about the role of women, at least in Methodism. Uh, There had been women in important leadership roles since the time of Wesley, but it was not until 1956 that the Methodist church granted women full clergy rights. Uh, This is a long-settled issue for us now, obviously, but there are still only a handful of major Christian denominations that have accepted this particular paradigm shift, and as you may have seen, uh, just Last week, or I guess the week before last, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention doubled down on their rejection of women in the pulpit, their loss. Currently, uh, our uh, culture is in the midst of a pretty contentious paradigm shift with regard to human sexuality, as you know. It's a reality uh, with which we United Methodists are wrestling as well. The lesson of history is that um, as human beings learn more, we are faced again and again with the challenge of rethinking what we thought we knew, and history tells us that we struggle with uh, and often fiercely resist new thinking and change. But the lesson of history um, is that new thinking and change are actually an essential part of who we are as Christians. And this was a pattern that was established by Jesus himself. Paradigm shifts were kind of his thing when it came to interacting with the religious community. As the incarnation of God in the world, uh, he, he brought divine revelation to help us learn something new about who God is, about who we should be, about how we should relate to God and each other, and predictably then as now, his thinking uh, was met with resistance. He challenged long-standing assumptions about the law of Moses, uh, and you know how religious folk love to rethink their rules. <laughs> he challenged existing power structures, and you know how much power structures like to be challenged. He preached uh, countercultural sermons that set high standards for his disciples. He called us to a radical love for God and for others, especially those on the margins, especially those who uh, in his day were rejected by the very religious and their leaders. And in the long term, of course, with the history of hindsight, taking the long view, we know that his ministry changed the world, and it saved all of us. (laughs) It gave us a life of meaning and purpose on this side of the grave, and the hope and promise of life with God in eternity. That was in the long term. But in the short term, it got him killed. (laughs) In no small part because paradigm shifts are really hard. So uh, let's read now from the text that has inspired our current sermon series, Uh, faith of a child. This is Matthew chapter 18, verses one to five. Listen friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the evangelist Matthew. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus preaches five extended sermons, what scholars call the five discourses in Matthew. In May, we focused on the first of these, which is more commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Our passage today is the, is the fourth of these di- discourses in Matthew, and it's given us, as I said, our theme for this June series. And the passage begins with a question posed by the disciples who, who seem to be preoccupied with what sounds at first like a shocking idea, who is the greatest? Now, in their case, uh, in, in this passage that we just read, uh, they speak of it in terms of the kingdom of heaven, but some version of this question comes up in all four gospels, it's almost a recurring theme. They essentially wanna know what's in it for me. And if we're really honest, I mean, don't all of us uh, wonder about this at one point or another? At, at, at least from time to time in our lives. Granted, it's a, it's a self-centered question. It's a question focused on ourselves and our need for recognition and success and affirmation, but, but don't we all wonder about that? It's as if they're saying, yes, Jesus, look, um, I love you and uh, I believe in you and I'll dedicate my life to you. All that was certainly true of the disciples, but there's this nagging question in their minds what about me, what do I get out of it? And one scholar refers to this as uh, the the appetite for prominence, noting the modern church is by no means immune to this disease. To me, although the question here in Matthew is stated in a bit of a grandiose manner, this is a normal paradigm, albeit a selfish one, or at the very least, um, a self-focused one. What's in it for me? And that's when Jesus hits us with this massive paradigm shift. We've been talking about it all month. He says, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And even knowing what we know about how Jesus feels about children, that's still a pretty radical expectation. The Greek word there strepho literally means to turn, so, um, or to turn around or uh, to change one's Mind meaning to think more like a child and less like the, the self-focused adults that we tend to be. Over the past few weeks, we've, we've talked about what this means. It means uh, remembering that we are made in the image of God and that everyone else is too. It means finding our security in God as a child does with their parents. It means uh, receiving and sharing unconditional love. As children do in their relationship with their parents. Today as we wrap up the series we're talking about the teachability of children. Children have this this natural curiosity. They know that they uh, have so much to learn and they show up in life constantly seeking to learn more. Uh, Early on it's by asking questions. (laughs) Lots of questions over and over again with the questions. And then they, they try to learn new things by trial and error. And of course, they, they go to school for 13 years or more learning side by side with their friends. Jesus is calling us to a, to a paradigm shift of being more open to paradigm shifts, which can be a tough thing to ask of adults. You know, we all, we all start out in life with an openness to learning new things, but at some point, As adults, uh, we can outgrow that sense of adventure in learning and we can get uh, preoccupied with the day-to-day details of work and living. I think it's easy to, to think at some point that we've got it all figured out. I think it's even natural at some point to start to assume that we've learned all that we need to learn, which is to say, the older we get and the longer we believe and the more comfortable we become with the the paradigms in which we function and through which we make sense of the world, the harder it is to open ourselves to new thinking. And the history of the world uh, proves this point over and over again, right? What do you mean the earth is not the center of the universe? I mean, Ptolemy proved that a thousand years ago. Or what do you mean humans evolved from monkeys? That's not what the Bible says. Or Women in the pulpit, that's preposterous. Here are two whole Bible verses that say so. <laughs> As we've already noted, even Jesus himself uh, was not immune to the hostility to paradigm shifts. Work on the Sabbath, you can't do that, the law is clear. Eat with sinners, what are you doing, Rabbi? That's, that's forbidden. You're the son of God, that's outright blasphemy. Jesus spent his ministry challenging paradigms, and here in the fourth great discourse in Matthew's gospel, he tells his disciples, tells us, in his wonderfully illustrative way, don't always assume that you've got it all figured out. Approach the world with a faith like this child that I've placed among you, which is to say, be open to new discoveries, welcome the fact that you'll gain new knowledge throughout your life. Understand that the Holy Spirit might lead you in surprising ways. Children are delighted to learn new things. Be like that, Jesus says. More specifically, he says, change (laughs) and become like that because too many of us adults forget. And then then he wraps it up with this, he says, Uh, whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Which means uh, that for the life of discipleship, humility is a virtue, intellectual humility, theological humility. As those uh, whose faith is in him, we we should be careful about getting too set in our thinking. Uh, over the course of this four-week sermon series, we've had lots of examples of children all around us. Uh, I've already mentioned our youth um, have represented us well last week on uh, Appa on their high school mission trip. The week before that, they were on choir tour on behalf of our congregation. Um, we've made all of our preparations for Vacation Bible School, except some last preparations this afternoon. You probably saw those as you walked in. The church is decorated. We're gonna host hundreds of children in the coming week. And over the past three weeks, we've had the blessing of baptizing uh, five precious children. Our fifth one will be this morning. All of which means that the Holy Spirit has filled our lives as a family of faith with these wonderful reminders of who Jesus wants us to be. The Russian novelist Dostoevsky wrote what I believe to be the greatest novel ever, The Brothers Karamazov. And he said something once that has always resonated with me. He said, the soul is healed by being with children. (laughs) May we uh, be faithful to Christ's teaching by following their example. Amen.